Together as we open the scriptures, if you have a Bible and we're following along, uh, this letter is buried in the middle of the New Testament. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at, oh gosh, which one was it? I can't remember. Anyway, I shared with you Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians is uh, General Electric Power Company. You guys remember that? Right after that is First and Second Thessalonians. So General Electric Power Company, First and Second Thessalonians. That's how you can navigate the New Testament a little better. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 is where we are this morning. Um, and we are continuing, as Rave mentioned, on our sermon series in the Apostles' Creed. We are going to continue no more after this. This is our last one. Um, this creed or statement of faith has been utilized by Christians for centuries. Um, and it outlines basic biblical truth that gives definition to what Christians believe. Um, if you've been around for hardly any amount of time, then you know there are all sorts of Christians. And there are all sorts of churches um, all around the world, look different, dress different, different nuances in what we believe. Some of them important, some of them less important. But this statement of faith, despite all our differences, unites us and shows what are the beliefs that we do share in common. And what we're doing through this sermon series, what we've done, is work through it line by line and sort of connect the dots between what the creed says and how it lines up with the Bible. And today we've come to the last line of this statement, and it is that I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So let's read through the Apostles' Creed one more time together, and then I'll read for us 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, brothers and sisters, hear the word of God after I turn there. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with them 
in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What happens after we die? What happens after we die? You know, one of the euphemisms for death is to say that someone has passed beyond the veil. The idea being that there's a veil between us now and what happens after death, and we can't see through this veil. We can't go around this veil. It blocks us from the knowledge of what happens after we die. And because there is so little knowledge about what's going to happen after we die, there is all sorts of cultural intrigue around this question. You may remember just a few years ago, there was a book publishing fad about these stories of people dying and then experiencing the afterlife and then soon thereafter coming back to life to recount their experience. The most famous of these books was Heaven is for Real, but there was very soon dozens of others that followed afterwards. And you can also think about TV shows like NBC's The Good Place or movies like Disney's Soul. Each of these are recent hits and very popular in large part because they draw upon our instinctive interest in what happens after we die. We all want to know because we're all ignorant and we're all going to die. Well, this final line of the Apostle Creed speaks to our final state. The creed began in the beginning. It began with creation. The opening line is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And now the creed ends with the end. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so from ages past, Christians have confessed the truth that in the end, resurrection is coming. For followers of Jesus, there is coming a day when our bodies will be raised unto everlasting life. For those who do not believe in Jesus, they will be raised as well, but only unto judgment. We discussed this in the fifth sermon of this series based on the line from the creed, I believe Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. But this final line of the creed especially speaks to the final state of God's people. Our bodies will be regenerated and we will be raised unto eternal life. For example, in John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29, Jesus is speaking. He says this, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, in other words, when all who are dead, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice. He's referring to himself. Jesus liked to talk in the third person a lot, which we mostly think is weird, but it's Jesus, so he gets to do whatever. He says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice, and they will come out of the tombs. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If we look at the broader context of John chapter 5, then we would see that those who have done good refers to those who have believed in Jesus. 
Jesus is saying resurrection is coming, an hour is coming when the dead will be raised out of their graves. For those who have resisted the gospel, for those who have rejected Jesus as Lord, it is a resurrection of judgment. For those who have received the gospel, for those who have trusted in Jesus, it is a resurrection of life. And it's that bodily resurrection unto everlasting life for believers. It's that resurrection that the creed is especially focused on in this last line. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And again, the text that we've chosen to unpack this truth biblically is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So in this letter, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in a city called Thessalonica. Paul had helped plant the church there, and now through this letter, he's writing back to the church in order to provide further instruction. And one of the parts of instruction they needed to grow in, apparently, relates to what happens after we die. So Paul is going to offer further instruction related to the resurrection and how it impacts our lives today. As we work our way through these verses, we're simply asking, how does the final resurrection impact our lives today? How should we respond to the truth of the future resurrection? First, Paul teaches us that we can grieve with hope. Grieve with hope. So look back at verse 13. Paul starts this section with these words. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So in one sense, the Thessalonians' problem was a knowledge issue. He says they were uninformed or they were ignorant. Paul says they were ignorant about those who are asleep. And in this case, asleep is a reference to being dead. More specifically, asleep is a way to describe a Christian who has died. Well, the Thessalonians' ignorance about their fellow Christians who had died or had fallen asleep, it led them to grieve in the same way as non-believers grieve. The way Paul puts it is that they are grieving in the same way as those who have no hope. In other words, as followers of Christ, they were grieving the death of their fellow believers in the same way that people who don't follow Christ grieve the death of their loved ones. Paul's logic is that we as believers in Jesus, we have hope beyond death. Unbelievers do not have hope beyond death. So why are we grieving death in the same way that they are? Let me put this in terms that relate to my wintertime experience here in Michigan. So for me, there are two types of Michigan winters. The first one are Michigan winters when I have a vacation planned to Florida in February or March. The second kind of Michigan winter are the ones when I do not have a vacation planned to Florida in February or March. And these two types of winter experiences are for me worlds apart. Because for the first one, I have hope. Even though the dark, cold, bitter January days pass by painfully slow, I have hope because I know that pretty soon I'm leaving on a jet plane 
I am flying to Fort Myers, then I'm driving further south to Marco Island, and for a week or so, I am going to soak up all the sun and heat and natural light that I possibly can. But for the second one, for the second type of winter, I have no hope. No vacation, no sunshine state, no swimsuits. There's nothing on the horizon to look forward to. It's just dark and cold and sad. Vitamin D pills, blue light therapy, none of it works. Well, Paul is sharing with the Thessalonian Christians, you, like CT, in his first winter scenario, you have something to look forward to. You have hope. And that should impact the way you grieve the death of your fellow Christians. Look further at verse 14. He continues. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant and grieve as those who have no hope, for since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So my wintertime hope is based on a plane ticket and hotel reservations, but Christian hope is based on something altogether different. Our hope beyond death is rooted in our belief that Jesus died and rose again. And more than that, God will bring with Jesus all those who have fallen asleep. So Paul here is pointing to the truth that when we trust in Christ, we are united to Christ. We are in Christ, as Paul so often puts it in his letters. But we are not just united to Christ generally speaking. We are united to Christ specifically in His death and in His resurrection. So his death counts as our death, and his resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, we were therefore buried with Christ. We were buried with Christ in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So friends, our hope is not as flimsy as vacation plans. Our hope is as certain as Jesus' grave is empty. He rose from death, and so God will raise us with Him. Yes, we grieve. When our brothers and sisters in Christ die, we do grieve their death. We grieve the brokenness of their bodies. We grieve the pain they experienced mentally and physically. We grieve for ourselves because we will miss them. Because for some Christians, there is this thought that we need to be as stoically emotionless as possible in life and in death, as if we can just cast away all feelings and have complete indifference to the troubles of life. But that is not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, I don't want you to grieve. He's saying, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. But followers of Christ, you have hope. And that hope is Christ that He died and rose on your behalf, and that you too, united with Him, will also rise one day unto glory. And your brothers and sisters in Christ who die, they also will rise with Him. So church, let's grieve death, but let's grieve death as those who have hope beyond death. 
How does our future resurrection impact our lives today? First, we can grieve with hope. Secondly, we anticipate the return of Christ. We anticipate the return of Christ. Listen again as Paul continues in verses 15 through 17. He writes this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, when he returns, he will descend from heaven again with a cry of command, with the voice of an angel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord in life and in death. So Paul continues to inform the Thessalonians about the resurrection and their future hope. And as he does, it starts to become clearer, perhaps, what their ignorance was specifically about. Based on what he says here, it seems that the Thessalonians had begun to believe that the only Christians who would be resurrected were those who were alive when Christ returns. But he asserts in verse 16 that actually the dead in Christ will rise first. And as he says in verse 15, we who are alive in Christ will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Instead, again, the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17 tells us it's only then after the dead in Christ have risen, when we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, there's a lot of debate amongst Christians related to the timing and order of events around the return of Christ. As I said before, there's a lot of differences amongst Christians, and this is just one of them. There's a lot of debate amongst Christians related to the order and timing of events when Christ returns. There's also a lot of debate related to the so-called rapture that's mentioned here in verse 17. And these are important debates to get as much clarity on our theology as possible. However, the most important thing to know, and the thing that all Christians do agree on, is that when Christ returns, resurrection happens. When the Lord descends from heaven, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are asleep in Christ will rise first. And then, right after that, all of God's people who are still alive will be raised with them. No exceptions. We all shall be changed. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, verses, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 52. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, Behold... I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. In other words, not all Christians are going to physically die because some will still be alive when Christ returns. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we too who are alive will be changed with them. Paul is saying essentially the same thing here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Those who die in Christ before he returns and those who are still alive when he returns, we shall all be changed. And this change happens 
when Christ returns. So Paul's logic from the first two verses, verses 13 and 14, to the next few verses, verses 15 through 18, the logic seems to be, first, grieve with hope because we will be raised from the dead. Secondly, anticipate Christ's return when we will be raised from the dead. Grieve with hope because we will be raised from the dead. Secondly, anticipate Christ's return when we'll be raised from the dead. So from 2008 until 2019, Marvel Studios produced nearly two dozen movies, all of which were one big storyline called The Infinity Saga. It started back in 2008. The first movie was Iron Man, and two dozen movies later, it ended with Avengers Endgame. But all of these movies were really one long story about how a superhero group, the Avengers, were formed, and spoiler alert, they ultimately defeated the villain Thanos, whose name happens to be the same Greek word for death. Thanos means death. That's what that whole 20-plus movie narrative arc is about, how the Avengers were formed and ultimately defeated Thanos, defeated death. Well, one of my favorite scenes from all of those movies comes in the second to last movie. It's called Avengers Infinity War, and the, uh, the individual scene is called the Battle of Wakanda. And during this scene, the Avengers, you know, Hulk, Iron Man, Black Widow, Black Panther, etc., the Avengers, along with the Wakandan army, are fighting an alien army led by Thanos, and it's not going well for the Avengers and the Wakandans. Thanos' army is beating them back, and shot after shot after shot shows one Avenger after the next getting beaten down. But all of a sudden, crashing down from the heavens like a lightning bolt, Thor the god of thunder, the son of Odin, he appears from above, wielding his freshly made super special axe called Stormbreaker. <laughs> and after Thor arrives and starts to show off his alien slaying ability, the camera dramatically zooms in on him. And then the producers of the film let rip that Alvin uh, Silvestri composed Avengers theme song. You know, dun, 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 dun. I mean, it just soars with perfect timing. It's epic, it's loud, it's emotional, it's climactic. And we all then cheer as Thor slices off Thanos' head. If you want to get the full nerd out effect, you only have to watch the 19 movies that preceded it. <laughs> or you can go to YouTube and search Thor Arrives in Wakanda. You can see the whole three-minute scene has over 30 million views. I would show it to you, but copyright uh, restrictions. So. But you see, this is, something that, this is something of what Paul is getting at when he describes the return of Jesus. He says in verse 16 that the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a cry of command. He's going to descend with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. You see, when Jesus first came, it was meek and mild. When Jesus first came, he was a baby in a manger. When Jesus first came, it was a silent night, but that is not this. When Jesus first came, it was in humility and poverty, not much to look at, but that is not this. 
Because upon his return, it is intensely dramatic. It is truly breathtaking. He arrives with the trumpet blast announcement of battle. Because he is not only a humble savior, beautiful as that truth is, but Jesus is also a warrior king. And when he returns, the sound of his commanding voice is going to echo to the heart of hell. And they are going to fall in fear because they'll know it's over. Death is defeated, sin is undone, and we, brothers and sisters, will be raised to life, victorious, forever. Death is in his crosshairs. And so, church, let's anticipate the return of Christ. He is coming for us. We will experience the elation and joy of victory like never before. So look forward to, anticipate His coming when we will be raised. It is not when you finally get a raise at work and start making more money. It is not when you finally meet the partner of your dreams and get married. It is not when you get that new position and have more status. It is not when your favorite politician gets elected and your party is in power. Looking forward to any of those things will never encourage your heart like you need them to because you don't know if any of those things will actually ever happen. And even if they do, those things still won't encourage your heart like you need them to. It's not when any of those things happen that we should anticipate and put our hope in. It's when Christ returns. It's when death is defeated. It's when we enter into life everlasting. That's where our anticipation needs to be fixed. Church, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes off of every possibility of earthly hope, because ultimately there is no possibility of earthly hope. It's only in the Lord Jesus. It's only in His return when He defeats Death slices off its head, and we return to life. How should we respond to the truth of the resurrection? Grieve with hope, anticipate Christ's return, and finally, comfort one another. Comfort one another. That's where this entire section lands. Look once more at verse 18. The apostle writes, Therefore, encourage one another. Paul ends this section with a concluding charge to the Christians. Therefore, in light of the future hope of resurrection when Christ returns, encourage one another. And this word translated here by the ESV as encourage, it's similarly translated by the King James, by the New American Standard as comfort. But the idea is the same. When we lose a loved one to death, it can be terribly discouraging and painful. However, encouragement can happen. Comfort can be received in the context of spiritual family. That's why that phrase, one another, is so important. Paul here does not highlight the role of a pastor. Paul here does not highlight the role of a counselor or a therapist as important as those positions can be. Instead, he lights the role of the entire congregation. He highlights the role of the entire community to minister to someone. When someone is grieving the death of a loved one, encourage, comfort one another. 
And then again, notice that final phrase, encourage one another with these words. So when we're encouraging one another, it's not an empty, baseless phrase like, they're in a better place. Death is just a part of life. Cherish your memories with them. No, we comfort one another. We comfort the grieving with the apostolic truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We encourage one another with the gospel truth that Christ has been raised and we will be raised with Him when He returns. Comfort one another with these words. So growing up, I was way too big of a football fan. You guys are totally getting both sides of my life. I am a nerd and totally into Marvel and DC stuff, and I am a jock who is way too obsessed with football. But I grew up uh, way too big of a football fan. I mean, I gave my heart and soul to it. And where I grew up in Alabama, there is this huge, honestly obnoxious rivalry between two college football teams, Auburn and Alabama. And growing up, gratefully, I was on the Auburn side. I was and still am a huge Auburn fan. Well, right around the height of my passion for Auburn football, I was in fifth grade, 1996, and that year, like every year, Auburn and Alabama played each other in their annual matchup. It's a game fondly referred to as the Iron Bowl. And during the game, my team, Auburn, we led almost the entire time. We were up 20 to 17 at halftime, but at the very end of the game, Alabama scored and we lost 24 to 23. So I go to school the following Sunday, and it was absolute torture. I mean, my Alabama friends are rubbing it in, they're talking smack, and I'm so discouraged. I'm so defeated, obviously upset. Had my head down on my desk, and I'll never forget my fifth grade teacher, Linda Kyle. Mrs. Kyle, in an attempt to encourage me, to comfort me, she came to my desk and said, CT, I know Auburn lost, I know it was a tough one. But hey, at least Auburn won the first half. <laughs> at least your team was winning at halftime. And I remember looking at Miss Kyle and thinking, ma'am, you do not understand. <laughs> you just don't get it. Because those words didn't encourage me at all. Those words didn't comfort me at all because what she said didn't solve my problem. Her words didn't actually get to the heart of the issue. We lost first half. What are you talking about? We lost the game, the most important game. Nothing can change that. But church, this is why the gospel is such good news. Because what Jesus did and the words Paul is writing about them, they do get to the heart of the matter. Because you see, here is, here's the gospel, here's the message of Jesus that does meet our deepest need. Our lives are broken. God made our lives good, God made our world good, but now our lives are broken. And the chief indication that our lives are broken is that we are going to die. The wages of sin is death, and there is nothing we can do to change that. But. In His mercy, Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven where He was enthroned. One day He will return, He will descend again from heaven, and when He does, we will be raised. 
with regenerated bodies just like his, the same power that woke Jesus up on Easter morning will be the same power that wakes us up on the last day. That is the gospel. Now, unlike, my failed, unlike the failed attempt of my fifth grade teacher, when we speak those words, when we speak that gospel truth, then you can comfort one another. You can encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ as we speak the gospel into one another's hearts. So this is an important question to ask ourselves. In light of what Paul says here, who are the fellow believers in your life that you are going to encourage when they walk through grief? And who are the fellow believers in your life that will encourage you when you walk through grief? Because Paul's command here, encourage one another, it assumes that we have one another's in our lives. He assumes that we are connected in spiritual family. He assumes that we have people with whom we are doing life such that they know when we're struggling. And we know when they're struggling. So we're able to comfort one another. But if you're disconnected, if you're isolated from spiritual family, if you're just showing up on Sunday morning and that's about it, then you're going to miss giving and receiving the spiritual encouragement the gospel comfort that Paul here says is available to us. Comfort one another. And so if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to join a life group or at least try to join a life group. Reach out to us. Tell us who you are. Let us try to connect you. Put you in a context where you can give and receive the kind of comfort, the kind of encouragement that we all need when we're grieving. So what happens after we die? Many of us struggle with this question. All of us have at least wondered about this question. And this is one thing that creeds are so helpful for. They provide clarity. And in this final line of the Apostles' Creed, it states the biblical truth that in the end, when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised. Yes, it's true. When it's all said and done, for sure, most Christians will have gone to sleep in death. But that's the beautiful thing about referring to death as a kind of sleep, because when we're asleep, it's assumed that we will wake up. And Paul says, as believers, we can assume the same thing when we die, when we sleep in death. It won't be the last time we lay down. And the same is true for our brothers and sisters in Christ when they die. And so, church, I urge you, let's grieve with hope. Let's grieve. Feel your feelings fully. When a loved one dies, when your spouse of decades dies, when your child of only a few months dies, their life is worth grieving. Let's grieve, but let's grieve with hope. Let's grieve secured and anchored in the truth that when Christ returns, we will be raised and all of our spiritual family with Him. Let's grieve with hope and let's anticipate His return. There are so many things held out to us to anticipate. Anticipate when you're going to get a new job. Anticipate when you're going to get married. Anticipate when you're going to have kids. 
Anticipate when you can retire. I mean, it never ends because nothing satisfies. The only thing that's going to give us what we need, the only thing worth anticipating is the return of Christ when He slices off death's head and we're raised to life. But until then, until He comes, and we don't know when He will come, friends, we must encourage one another. Grief can be suffocating. Grief can be crippling. And so we must encourage one another with apostolic words, with the words of the gospel. Let's engage in one another's lives, and let's speak truth into one another's hearts. Amen? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's Word together. Sing His praise one more time. Confess our faith as we sing, and I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the legacy of faithfulness going back centuries, the legacy of faithfulness that the Apostle Creed symbolizes. God, your people across millennia have confessed that Jesus is Lord, that you are creator, that Jesus died and rose and will return. All these wonderful gospel truths your people have confessed. In the face of persecution, struggling with doubt, grieving the death of loved ones, throughout the centuries, your people confessing the one faith is an amazing legacy, an amazing sign of our unity, our common hope. So God, we pray for more of that until you return, God. May our eyes remain fixed on Christ May our hearts remain soaked in the Scriptures so that we could stand firm, so that we could guard the good deposit, so that we could have discernment against alien spirits who would corrupt the gospel. God, may this church be found faithful. And Father, I pray for any of us here who are experiencing grief now. I pray for any of us here who are experiencing hopelessness now in life and as they face death. God, I pray that they would be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God, may we now experience the spirit of Christ, the spirit of life, the spirit of truth so that we could live our lives, so that we could walk towards death with a firm certainty that as certain as Jesus rose from the grave, United with him, we will rise too. God, I pray that for every one of us, that we would have hope in life and in death through Christ. It's him that we continue to praise. It's him that we continue to confess as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.